good to be with you this morning. I'm excited to get into this passage in Philippians chapter 3. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, why don't you turn there, Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. If you're not familiar with the Bible, Philippians is off to the right in the New Testament. You can work from the right and work backwards and you'll come to this little book, this letter from Paul in Rome in prison to the church that was residing in Philippi. Let me pray and let's turn to the Lord's word together. Father, we look to you this morning. You're a God who bleeds mercy. You're a God who not only created, but longed to move heaven and earth to see your people reconcile to you. Lord Jesus, we saw earlier in Philippians that you obeyed the Father all the way to death, all the way to death on a cross. And it was in your death that God exalted you above every name in creation, and that at your name every knee would bow, every tongue would confess that you are Lord of all. Holy Spirit, we come to you for food this morning. We trust that when your word is proclaimed, that it's sowed in the soil of our hearts, and that in due course you bring a harvest. So we submit to your word this morning we want to hear you speak. We want to hear you encourage and bring comfort. We want you to lift up Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So as pressure and stress increase in my life, my dreams become more bizarre. I don't know if you can relate to this. But I have a recurring dream that I'm standing in the bathroom just off to most of your left. And the church is singing. Sometimes the scripture is being read, just like Kendall was just reading. And I can't finish getting dressed. I can't get my jacket on, or the microphone cord is tangled, or my pants are actually shorts. And I'm feeling desperate. I'm feeling desperate because I know I need to stand here and preach the word. But instead, I'm standing there, and I've got this dilemma. I have a clothing crisis. I don't have on the right wardrobe. Now, God employs this metaphor of proper clothing often throughout the Bible. From the very opening pages of the Bible, you have a shame-filled Adam and Eve hiding in the bushes, and God clothes them with animal skins. You come to the very end of the Bible, and you find the church now coming into this eternal, everlasting city, and they are clothed in Christ's righteousness. And in between, we find in human history men and women, boys and girls, who are desperate to clothe themselves with their upbringings, with their achievements, with their accomplishments, with their actions or things that they haven't done. And that's what we see in Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. There's a group in the Philippian church that's arguing that Christ is not enough. Now, they don't come out and say that. But they're adding works to faith. They're saying that Christ alone is not enough, that works are needed, that effort is necessary. And of all people, the Apostle Paul gets this. Of all people who can be confident in their own flesh, certainly it's the Apostle Paul. But he says quite famously that he counts it all as rubbish. He counts it all as garbage. All as loss. All as filthy rags in light of the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ as Lord. 
And so our main idea this morning is to reject self-confidence and instead to rejoice in the confidence we have in Christ. Filthy rags for wedding clothes. That's the trade that God offers us through his word. So let's begin in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7 that I've entitled Filthy Rags. Now Paul begins by saying, finally. So he's on a move toward a close, but there's still plenty for Paul to say. Look at verse 1. Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. This has been a theme throughout Paul's letter. It's why we've entitled this sermon series, Stand Firm with Joy. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. It's no trouble for me to remind you of these things that I'm about to remind you of. And it's a safety valve for you. It's a safeguard for you. I want to preserve your joy. And the Philippians, as we'll see, can preserve their joy as a church by watching out for people who promote self-confidence. There's a faction in the church who are unfaithful to the gospel, and Paul is eager to point that out. Now, what exactly are these people doing? Well, Paul doesn't pull any punches. Look at verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, the term Judaizer may or may not be familiar to you. The term simply refers to a subset of Jews who are Christians who are claiming that in order to be saved, non-Jews need to not only trust in Christ, these non-Jews, these Gentiles also need to be circumcised in order to be in the church. Now, this is a persistent problem. In Acts 15, all the apostles and the church in Jerusalem come together to, to talk about this. Most of Galatians is addressing this issue. But if Christ's work is to be sufficient, then it's out of bounds for these Judaizers to insist that Gentiles be circumcised in order to be part of the church. Paul refers to them as dogs, which is a flip. It's a, it's a biting rebuke. The Jews sometimes used the term dogs to refer to Gentiles. They were unclean. They're, they're Gentiles. It's a, a mistaken pride in their own heritage that would cause them to look down on Gentiles. And Paul takes that derogatory insult and he boomerangs it back at this group of Christians in Philippi. He refers to them as dogs, as evildoers. You are the ones who are misrepresenting God. And then in a graphic wordplay on circumcision, he tells them that they are mutilators of the flesh. You think you're being noble. You think you're being right. But really, you're just mutilating flesh. You're requiring circumcision where God does not require it for these Gentiles who have come to faith in Christ. Now, this comes down to arrogant pride on the part of some in the church in Philippi. And it's an embarrassing display of self-confidence. They're standing on a good work. They're standing on something outside of Christ. But a physical mark on the body is not a sign that one belongs to Christ. Look at verse 3. For we, emphasis mine, for we are the circumcision. We are the true circumcision. Not you who force Gentiles to be circumcised. We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God. And glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. The true circumcision doesn't come about by a mark on the flesh, but it is a mark. And Paul provides three marks of the true church 
And this is true of uncircumcised Gentiles who trust Christ, and it's true of circumcised Jews who trust Christ. Here are the three. They must worship in the Spirit of God. Do you remember what Jesus says to the woman at the well in John 4? There's a time coming when you will worship in spirit and in truth, where the Spirit will guide your worship. And secondly, their mark is they glory or boast in Christ Jesus, not themselves. Their confidence is not in themselves. When they think about my okayness with God, it's nothing to do with me. It's nothing that I've done or I haven't done. They boast in Christ. That's a mark of someone who belongs to him. And then third, they put no confidence in the flesh. I think John Calvin is helpful here. He says that by in the flesh... Paul just means everything outside of Christ. As you look at verses 1 through 11 and you look at flesh versus faith, you see that he's saying anything that you put your confidence in outside of Christ should be considered flesh. And of all people, Paul should have confidence in the flesh. Paul's not speaking from envy, like he doesn't have this same confidence, therefore he must assert this. No, Paul's saying, I have more confidence in the flesh than anyone. Look at verses 4 through 6. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now Paul gives us four reasons why he should have confidence in the flesh, and then tells us at the end, I have none. But here are the reasons he gives. First, I have the perfect pedigree. Paul is born a Jew. He's circumcised on the eighth day exactly when he should. He's a Benjamite. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews, a birth pedigree to boast about. Secondly, he's a Pharisee. Paul's internalized the law. He's a leading member of the most strict and adherent sect of Jews. Third, Paul's zealous. His fidelity to God's word is as strong as one could ever hope to the point where he persecutes the church of Jesus, where he he stands by and arranges for Christians to be arrested and killed for their faith. There's no one who will question Paul's zeal for God. And then finally, Paul says, I'm blameless. According to the law, according to a strict reading of the law, I'm blameless. I know the law. I follow the law, and when I break the law, I offer the sacrifices required by the law. I'm pristine. I could walk with an arrogant pitch in my neck. I'm all right. I know this word, and I'm blameless. But of course, verse 7 says Paul has no confidence in any of these things. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. Now, as I said, Calvin helps us by saying that flesh equals anything outside of Christ. So where do you place your confidence? Let's push this into 2022. Is it birthright? Like Paul, the Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm okay with God because I grew up in a Christian family. I was born into a family that loved Jesus. I grew up going to church. I know the Bible. I can sing the songs. But listen, that's like saying that because you swim in a pool, you become water. Exposure to Christianity does not make you a Christian. Or 
Is it strict obedience like Paul the Pharisee? I'm okay with God because I obey God's word. I'm distinct from the world. My mouth is free of the wrong words. I show up every Sunday for church. I give generously. I know what good Christians are supposed to do, and I do it. And I know what good Christians are supposed to avoid, and I avoid it. If this is you, then you've missed the reality that God wants transformed hearts, not outward conformity. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, Jesus says in Matthew 23. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. If it's not strict obedience, perhaps it's Christian activity. Like Paul the zealot. I'm okay with God because I'm busy. I'm working hard for Jesus. I'm helping out with all the things. I'm busy serving in all the ministries. All the people call me when they need something. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus says there in Matthew 7, 22, that there is a way to be very busy with Christian activity, but have no concept of treasuring Christ as Savior and Lord. Or if it's not birthright, if it's not strict obedience, if it's not Christian activity, then perhaps finally it's confidence in good works like Paul the blameless one. I'm okay with God because I'm a good person. I wear the kindness t-shirt. I'm good to the people around me. I'm for all the good causes. I volunteer in the community. I'm a good person. Isaiah 64, 6. We've all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. What does Paul say? I may have all the right things, all the right achievements, all the right accomplishments. I might do all the right actions, but I count them all as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ as Lord. Confidence in ourselves doesn't work because it's like dressing ourselves up in dirty rags, to borrow Isaiah 64's metaphor. No matter how hard we try, no matter how much energy we expend, no matter how much we give, we're still, at the end of the day, wearing dirty rags. Jesus compares the kingdom of heaven, that is the kingdom he initiated at his first coming, and the kingdom that he will usher in when he returns, he likened the kingdom of heaven to a wedding feast. And he tells this story of a king who's throwing a wedding banquet for his son. And the king says to the servants, go out and invite all the guests to come to the wedding. The banquet is ready and it's time for the feast. So the servants go out to all the invited guests and the invited guests make up excuse after excuse about why they can't come to the wedding feast. Not only do they reject the offer, they also beat up and kill some of the servants. 
And the king is angry. The king is angry because they've rejected his offer. The king is angry because they've beaten and killed some of his servants. So he says to the servants remaining, the feast is ready. So go out into the roads, all the roads, and invite all who will come. Invite them to the wedding feast that's ready. And the guests come and they fill up the banquet hall. Good and bad. All sorts of backgrounds. They've come to the wedding feast that the king is throwing for his son. And then the king walks into the banquet hall and sees it full. And then he sees one particular guest who's not wearing wedding garments. And the king asks the guests, why are you not dressed for the wedding? And the guest is speechless. And so the king says to the servants, take this one and throw him into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then Jesus ends with this conclusion. Many are called, few are chosen. Now God the king has sent the church out into all the nations to proclaim that the wedding feast is ready, that the king is inviting guests to come to be with him for eternity in his kingdom. But there is a problem. We can't come dressed to the wedding feast in filthy rags. We cannot come to the wedding feast dressed in self-confidence, dressed in self-dependence, dressed in self-righteousness. There is no achievement, no accomplishment, no action that we can put on that would make us ready for the wedding feast. This is what Jesus is saying in this parable. You need to find wedding clothes. That's the desperate moment of my recurring dream. I cannot find the proper clothes. So how do we find the wedding clothes? That's where Paul turns next in verses 8 through 11. You see, there is a set of clothes for us to wear that will fill our hearts with the joy and the rejoicing that Paul wants us to embrace. Remember, that's where Paul begins chapter 3. Finally, brethren, rejoice. Look at verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. It's not that every accomplishment and every achievement and every good work is garbage in of itself. It's when we try to use those things to justify ourselves before God. And in light of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, they become nothing. They become all loss. Because of the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ my Lord. Do you see loss and gain are flipped at the cross? At the cross where death produces life and suffering produces exaltation, loss becomes gain and gain becomes loss. And now that Paul knows Jesus, he knows him, everything has changed for him. Gripped by Jesus' work, Paul is forever changed. And let's not miss the fact that we can know God. This is a relationship He's invited us into fellowship with him. The eternal king of all things becomes an intimate father to us. The God who holds the oceans in the palm of his hands. The one who tells the waves how far to come and no further. 
the one who commands the wind and waves to fall silent and still. That one, that massive, majestic God invites us from the least to the greatest to know him and then says to us, I will remember your sins no more. I will take your sins and I will throw them into the very depths of the sea. The one who ushers us into joyful fellowship with himself. And that's of surpassing worth. You may see a great puddle on the beach, but when you see the ocean beyond it, it becomes of surpassing worth to you. Your heart has found a new treasure that eclipses the attempts at self-confidence and self-righteousness. And having known Jesus, Paul will gladly suffer loss of all those accomplishments and all those achievements and all those actions. And he can count them as rubbish, literally garbage or dung, if it means he can gain Christ. But what is so significant about gaining Christ? Why is Jesus of such surpassing worth? Look at verse 9. And may be found in him, Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Do you see why this is good news? It feels at first like bad news, but do you see why it's good news? There is no action that I can take on my own that would make me okay with God. No achievement, no accomplishment. This is because what God expects of us is moral perfection. And you and I both know that we've fallen desperately short of that standard. We, can't, we cannot find the proper wedding garments. There is no righteousness of my own that I can produce that would make me ready for the wedding feast that is to come. But here's why this is good news. Because what God demands, He always provides. And He doesn't charge for it. And He doesn't manipulate us to get it. You don't need to clean yourself up to come to the wedding. That's good news. You don't need to rush to iron your clothing. You don't have to desperately scour your closet to find just the right wedding garment. And you don't need to worry because you don't have the money to buy a wedding gown that will be sufficient for the party to come. God offers you a righteousness that comes from Him. God offers you a righteousness that comes from out of this world. Luther called it alien righteousness because it comes from eternity and it comes to us in Christ. It's a righteousness that depends only on faith, only in trusting that Jesus will provide what I need to be okay with God. Now, Paul says we are literally found in Christ. We are united to Christ, inseparably tied together. Our future, because of his work and our faith in his work, is inseparably tied together. When God looks at us, he sees Jesus' accomplishment. He sees Jesus' achievements. He sees Jesus' actions. We are clothed in Christ's righteousness. Look at verses 10 and 11. That I may know Christ 
and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may obtain, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. We aren't just fastened and glued to Christ in his death and suffering. At this moment, Christ doesn't lie in a borrowed tomb. His body is not decaying in a borrowed tomb. At this very moment, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. We are caught up in his suffering and we are caught up in that glory. The power of his resurrection resides on us. We are connected to it. And though we who love him may join him in suffering in this world, becoming even like him in his death, we will also join him in the resurrection of the dead. We are caught up in his victory. Now, Nicole and I visited the National Cathedral Friday. We've been in the area for 15 years, and we've not been to the National Cathedral until Friday. Nicole couldn't stop noticing endless details. Everywhere we looked, details. Etched in wood, carved in stone, fashioned in glass and tile. Every nook and cranny was cared for, was meticulously prepared and fashioned by a workman. I couldn't stop noticing how the architecture stoked my imagination. It just made me wonder. It was massively grand and majestic. All the arched wooden doors with the iron circle handles that I couldn't resist turning and trying to get through. All the stone curved passageways. They stoked my imagination and wonder. And we loved it. We loved most of it. I couldn't help but notice the seating arrangements. The seating in there is interesting. Because people are separated from one another. And people are separated from God. You see, the more important you are, the more forward and centered you are. And God himself seems to be hidden behind rails and steps and structures. There's a sense of separation that I felt as I walked in there. You see, if you're insignificant and unimportant in the world, then you're probably sitting further back and off-center. And that may cause you to wonder, while you see people of greater worldly significance sitting closer and centered, if God feels this way about me as well. Does God feel this sense of insignificance, unimportance? As you sit far back straining for a view or far off to the side, while those with worldly accomplishments sit nearer and more centered. Now, I'm not looking to ruin our views and our love for the National Cathedral. I am saying that it could reinforce something that's unhelpful and something that we see in the church in Philippi, where these Judaizers are unintentionally creating classes of Christians. And Paul is condemning that thinking. It creates shame, not rejoicing. It creates division, not unity. It produces pride, not humility. Because here's the reality. When we look out at a church family, we see one group of people who were clothed 
in filthy rags, but in Christ they've been reclothed with wedding garments. There is one group of people, no matter what you brought to the table in terms of worldly accomplishments, you left it at the cross. Everywhere you go in this city, someone is sizing you up. That should never happen here because no matter what has happened in your life prior to the cross, you lay it down as a filthy rag and you are clothed with Christ's righteousness. We are one in Christ. Now, as we walked outside around the cathedral, we came across these decapitated stone heads. It was, it was odd. They're all behind an iron fence. One of, the ma- one of the decapitated heads even had a pink face mask on. Somebody, somebody hopped the fence with a sense of humor. Okay, we read the sign, and these heads were heads of Old Testament prophets. And in the 2011 earthquake, those heads began to spin like tops, and some of them went careening to the floor. And then they were picked up, and they were put in a line behind the fence. Now, I'm not sure if the Old Testament prophet Zechariah was among this group or not. This is not a joke coming. It's just a transition. (laughs) But Zechariah tells a striking story that I think is helpful. God shows Zechariah a view of the heavenly throne room. And on the throne sits the angel of the Lord, Jesus himself. And before Jesus stands Joshua, the high priest of Israel at the time. And next to Joshua stands Satan, who is accusing Joshua to the angel of the Lord, Jesus. Now what we find is that Zechariah tells us that Joshua, the high priest, is standing before Jesus, the angel of the Lord, in filthy garments. Now it raises the question, what will Jesus do with this high priest, Joshua? Will he listen to Joshua's accuser, Satan? Will he throw him out of the throne room and condemn him? Well, Jesus first turns and rebukes the accuser, Satan. Is this not a brand that has been plucked from the fire? Talking about Joshua, the high priest, who's dressed in filthy clothes, Jesus says to Satan, is this not a coal that has been taken out of the fire? Is this not one who has been saved? And then Jesus turns to those who are standing before him, attendants probably. And he says, remove the filthy garments from him. And then Jesus turns and he looks at Joshua and says to him, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments, with pure clothing. Yes, he's dressed in filthy rags. And then Jesus will reclothe him with pure clothing. In the Garden of Eden, God finds a shame-filled Adam and Eve hiding in the bushes because they've realized they're naked after they sin against God. And what does God do when he comes walking to them in the cool of the day? He clothes their nakedness with animal skins. He kills animals and he clothes them with the skins. But the clothing of those animals will not be sufficient because the sacrifice of animals cannot eternally take away our sins. They can only temporarily cover them. And that's what we see in the entirety of the sacrificial system. 
But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now maybe you're struggling with pride this morning. Pride that looks more like self-reliance. Be self-righteousness. But you know what? You're haunted by the shaky ground that you're wobbling on. Deep down, you know that no matter how righteous, no matter how good, no matter how many achievements, you know deep in your soul, deep in your bones, that they will not count. I want to plead with you this morning to take off the filthy rags and to be clothed in the wedding garments of Christ. Or maybe you're struggling with shame this morning, the opposite side of the spectrum. You're afflicted by the uncertainty of your standing. You know very well your sin, your constant struggle. And so this morning, you're feeling far off. You're feeling the weight and the stench of those filthy rags. Let Christ adorn you with wedding clothes. Lay the filthy rags at his feet and let him clothe you with wedding garments. Because for you, there is only joy. There is no condemnation for those who are alive in Christ. Now let's close here. When you stand before God someday, maybe imagine that you are that high priest, Joshua. You're standing before the king of glory. What will you say to him? What will you say to make your defense? What's the reason that you have for standing before the king of glory? Will you talk of your accomplishments and your achievements and your actions? Now, those are filthy rags because they can't produce joy. They can't produce joy because they can't produce the confidence that you long for. And this is what Paul wants. He wants the church in Philippi to rejoice, not in their filthy rags, which can provide no confidence, but in the wedding garments of Christ's righteousness that can produce confidence. Friends and church family, you are invited to a wedding feast. We are invited guests to the wedding feast. The great King of glory longs for us to come. He longs to usher us into an eternal banquet that will never end. His Son, Jesus, is the groom. The church is gathering the nations to come to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And one day the church will descend from heaven like a bride adorned for her husband. So put your confidence in Christ. Ground your assurance in Christ. Build your foundation on Christ. Let him dress you in the wedding clothes of his righteousness. Isaiah 61, verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. Let's, let's pray. Lord Jesus, your 
brilliance astounds us. The fact that one man's disobedience could throw the entire human race into peril. Your righteousness has made it possible for us to be restored to God. And so we look to you this morning and place our confidence in Christ alone. Amen.